Scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 3, but if you'll allow me, just want to express to you on behalf of Jamie and I and our children the welcome we've received in being here and how much you've meant to us. It was a been a tough transition for us in a number of ways, but we're grateful to you and we'll always love you and appreciate it and thankful to be able to be a part of you now. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me. And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take care, brethren, that there be not in any of one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. I heard about a fellow gospel preacher that was uh, going through his file of uh, funeral sermons. He was looking for a poem that he thought that he had used recently and had filed in that particular place. But he said as he was sifting through all of those services from the past 20 plus years, it kind of reconnected him to some, some people that he had known a long, long time ago and some of them that he had not seen since, former friends as, as well as people whose funeral he was preaching at the time and, and other folks that he had not thought about in a long time. He said a lot of familiar faces began floating up from, from his memory. There was one in particular that he said resurrected less than pleasant thoughts. He ran across the funeral notes of a man named Joe. That's nobody that you would know. But it reminded Dan, the preacher, of the truth of the lesson that I'd like for us to think about for a few minutes together this morning. And the lesson is simply this. Now is the only time that we have to obey God. Dan remembered very well that, those, those, that funeral message that he had preached for, for Joe's funeral. He recalled that he had delivered it on a Monday morning and that only the Friday before he had actually been in Joe's house visiting with him. You see, Joe was not a Christian. And he knew Joe because Joe had relatives in their congregation. He had been worshiping with them for the last several weeks. And that Friday, they had talked very heart to heart about important matters, about things like Joe's spiritual welfare, the condition of his soul, And where he would spend eternity. And then most importantly, they spent most of their time talking about God's good news of salvation. And Joe agreed that he needed to obey the gospel. And he said that he would obey the gospel. Just not yet. He wasn't quite ready. He had some things he needed to take care of first. 
But he assured Dan that he intended fully to do so one day, someday soon. But Joe wanted to wait. He wanted to be sure, and he wanted his wife to join him and and take that step with him. And he was glad, very glad that Dan had come to visit. He assured him that he would get back to him. And once again at the door, he assured Dan one more time that he fully intended to obey the gospel and become a Christian. Just not yet. And then there Dan was the following Monday morning, standing in front of that grieving family and a little gathering of friends preaching Joe's funeral. He had died unexpectedly over the weekend of a heart attack. And when he passed away, the family contacted Dan because he was the last and maybe the only contact that Joe had had with the local church. And while Dan struggled that Monday morning to offer words of of comfort and consolation to the family, he said the words that really kept rolling and revolving through his head the entire time he was up speaking and delivering that eulogy were these words. If only, if only. You know, every preacher can tell you a story and probably several just like that one. And that's why this morning I want to talk about my favorite subject. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to specifically examine one crucial aspect of the gospel message. And that is the word exigency. Now, if that's not a familiar word to you, then don't worry, because I had to look it up too. And according to Noah Webster and his lovely wife, Miriam, (laughs) the word means a situation that requires immediate attention. Let me back up and run over that one more time. It is a situation that requires not just attention, but immediate attention. It is a matter of... Of urgency. Now, when I speak about the exigency of the gospel, I simply mean that when we're presented with the message of the cross, when we know that in light of what we have learned from our open Bible, that there are changes that need to be made and must be made in order for us to be right with God, and when we understand what we can do to respond to God's wonderful invitation to become his children, to become a part of his eternal kingdom, the church of our Lord, then we're faced with a, with a matter of immediate consequence. Now we have the option of saying, as free will beings, we have the option of saying, I am not interested at all. Or we can be like Joe and say, I am immensely interested and I understand and agree that I need to do that and I intend fully to do that someday. But all of that is because of the unique nature of the gospel. That's, why, that's what makes it so urgent. That's what makes it a matter that requires our immediate attention. Because it is not a sales pitch. God's word is not just some lecture that we can sit through and hopefully we can stay awake. And the way we respond at that very moment, please listen to me church. The way we respond to the hearing of the gospel message at that very moment may very well determine our eternal destiny. Now, you won't find a verse that says that exactly, but the idea, the urgency of our response to the gospel message is implied in every page of Scripture. And the way we respond at that moment may determine which way we go in eternity. Someone has aptly said that the Bible is different than any other piece of literature in that it requires not only our analysis, but also 
our response. And that's exactly right. And that's also because, as the gospel song says, tomorrow's sun may never rise to bless our long deluded sight. We may not have another day or even another chance to be able to respond appropriately and lovingly to God's wonderful message of salvation. Let me mention four fundamental principles that are inherent in the gospel message that makes it an exigent message. Number one, the Bible teaches us that God wants everyone to enjoy his fellowship, to experience his indwelling spirit, and to receive his blessings. And that we can only do that fully when we are, in fact, his children. There are special blessings that belong only to God's people. And I hope we understand that. We've used that uh, illustration before of Romans 8 and verse 28. How that God in the Sermon on the Mount tells us, Jesus told those disciples and us, that God causes the sun to shine upon the good and the bad, and the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. That's God's general providence. But Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, is God's specific providence that is offered to and can only be received by God's people. So we need to understand that there are some special blessings that belong to us only when we have had our sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and that we are a part of his eternal kingdom. So we need to know that. That was, that was a fact even in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, Ezekiel is recording the very words of God. And here's what he says, writing by inspiration. Because there were those even in Ezekiel's day who were saying, I think God takes some degree of pleasure from being able to condemn people. And Ezekiel is trying to dispel that notion. And, and he's allowing God to speak for himself. Here's what he writes. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live. Ezekiel is just wanting the people that he was preaching to, to understand and to appreciate the fact that God is on our side. He wants all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth. First Timothy chapter two and verse four. That's one of the most critical principles of the gospel message. The second principle is simply this, that God will not save us unless we indicate that we want to be his people. Again, it is our choice. God will not coerce us. He will not force us. He will not overly influence us, but he will let us know, again, at least by implication on every page of scripture, that he desperately wants our salvation. He wants every one of us to be saved. Turn for a moment to John chapter 3. Look at some verses that you're familiar with and maybe one verse that you're not quite so familiar with. John chapter 3. You know verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, the world was already lost. So Jesus did not come to condemn. He came simply to get us out of this spiritual predicament. And then verse 18, you might not be quite so familiar with. He who believes in him is not condemned. And he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now, 
John is just spelling it out for us and letting us know where we stand spiritually. God sent his son because he loves us. He did not come to condemn us. He came to save us. But our soul's eternal destination is and has always been in our hands. We have the choice of either rejecting that message or accepting it. Here's the third principle I want you to think about for just a moment. And that is without that obedient response, that positive response on our part, even an almighty, omnipotent God is powerless to save us. Isn't that true? If I don't want to be saved, there's nothing that he can do or will do that will make me make the right choice and to appropriate the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ in my life. That explains why in the Bible we so often encounter the startling spectacle of the creator of the universe tenderly pleading with his children to come home. You can read those kinds of accounts even in the Old Testament where he would send the judges or the prophets to his wayward people and and beg them to come back home, to come back to fellowship with him, to be restored and reunited and to walk with him in in peace and harmony and happiness and, and, and in unison with him again. You find that story over and over in the 39 books of the Old Testament and you also find that theme replete in the New Testament as well. God evidently respects our free will so much that he gives us the freedom to choose even when he knows that we may choose what's wrong. But he loves us enough to respect our free moral agency. Listen to Isaiah 65 verse 2. And all day long I I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good. So they're walking in a way that is in disaccord with the will and the way of God. But God says, here's what I'm doing all the time you're doing that. I'm holding out my hands to that obstinate people. I'm supplicating and I'm pleading with them to come back and to be reunited in fellowship with me. Or over in the New Testament, a passage even more familiar would be Luke 13 and verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those that have been sent to you, how often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Notice this last phrase. But you were not willing. Did you get that? God was. He was more than willing. He was willing to do everything he could to get his wayward people to come back. But you, you were not, he said. Here's the fourth and the last principle I want us to think about, and that is this offer, like so many offers that we receive in life, comes with an expiration date. God will not plead with us forever. God will not hold his hands out in supplication and say, please, won't you come back home? Won't you leave the far country and come back to your father's house where you know that you will find love and security? Won't you just please come home? That expiration date is, in my judgment, no better described than it is in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you'd like to turn there, I, I want to read a couple of verses from that passage. Again, a wake-up call. And Peter writes this as he's talking about what's going to happen when the Lord comes back. This is, this is eschatological. This is having to do with the end times. And here's what he says. The Lord is not slow 
Starting with verse 9, by the way, of 2 Peter 3. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow or slack concerning his promise, as some men count slowness. slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And then here's where he begins to talk about the expiration date. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything thing in it will be laid bare. There's coming a time when all of these material things, including this old earth, are going to be burned up. They're going to be destroyed. And where will we be then? And that's why the apostles in all of their preaching urged their hearers not to just be a good audience and please try to stay awake while I'm preaching, but to act and to respond to and to obey the message that they were hearing. There's been a tendency, even in churches of Christ, in the last few years to no longer extend an invitation. And I think that's a misuse of our time. There's certainly no place in Scripture where it says you have to do that. But while we're thinking about spiritual things, what better time than to give people, to remind people of the opportunity and, and the responsibility to respond appropriately to the message that they're hearing from God's Word. I mean, this is a time when we're thinking about the Lord coming back and we're thinking about the expiration date on every one of us. They, enter, they entreated those people to, to, to make a public decision to follow Jesus and to confess him openly and to carry their cross and to pay whatever price was necessary to be united in his death, burial, and resurrection through the act of baptism. You will find that replete in the message of the apostles. In fact, check it out for yourself. Every conversion story, I, f I think you'll find this if you read through just the book of Acts. Every conversion story in the book of Acts ends with, with not some private prayer prayed on behalf of the person who is hearing the message of salvation saying, Lord Jesus, come into my heart as my personal Savior. You will never find that. But with a prompt and public demonstration of their acceptance of the gospel message. This was not something that was done in the closet. People were always called upon to obey what they had just heard. I submit that although 2,000 years has passed, we still need to give people the right and the opportunity to do the exact same thing today. You know, even when Paul became a follower of Jesus, Ananias had to come to him in Acts twenty-two sixteen and say, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. He had to be moved to obedience by a man who had the power of the message of God. Now let me mention three reasons why we need to accept God's grace when we have the opportunity to do so. We've sung about his amazing grace already this morning, and I'm so glad that Izzy led us in a couple of those songs. They're so appropriate, so relevant to the message, but also to the condition of our hearts. We need God's amazing grace, don't we? And if we're looking for what we deserve or for what the Lord owes us, then we would not like what, what the results would be. But if we recognize that God's amazing grace makes our salvation possible, then that's when we're ready to really listen and then really to respond to the message of God. The first reason typically offered is that we don't know when Jesus is going to return, but that when he does return, the Bible teaches that at that time, 
the door will be shut. Do you hear me, church? The door will be shut. Look closely sometime at Matthew chapter 25. Sadly, we don't have time to do that this morning. But you know the passage and, and you know the parable of the servants. But you also know how that Matthew 25 begins when the Lord is talking about the five foolish and the five wise virgins. And, and the whole point of that parable was that they were invited to a wedding feast. Please note among all the important elements of that parable that in my estimation, the most important phrase in that whole account is these four words. And the door was shut. And the door was shut. The five foolish virgins were not prepared when the master of the feast, the groomsman, came home. And the door was shut. But Lord, I recognize the urgency of this situation now. But the door was shut. Lord, I'd like to come into the wedding at this time because I'm here now and the door was shut. I admit that isn't the most important reason though, even for the exigency of the gospel. The second obvious reason is that we don't know when our life will end. I dare say that none of us in this audience are watching online today can circle on the calendar with absolute certainty, I know that this is the day that I would die. Most of us would not opt to do that even if we could. Don't want to know the day when I check out of this life and, and move into eternity. We all, though, have an expiration date. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. It's pointed unto man once to die. All men, in fact, once to die. And after that, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27 says, you'd have to have help to misunderstand that. We just don't know when that's going to be. Do you remember the outpouring of, of shock and, and grief over the unexpected death of Princess Diana back in 1997? Can you believe it's been that long ago, first of all? But you remember how, if you were around then, how that not only in, in, in Great Britain, but also here in the United States, that people responded to that unexpected death. And even though most people who knew her did not know her personally, all they knew is what they'd seen on television and they'd seen their picture, her picture on, on magazine covers and so on. They'd, uh, they found it still hard to comprehend that she was truly gone and that she had left this existence and that she'd been swept into eternity just like those of us who are not royalty someday will have to do. You know, whenever any well-known celebrity dies unexpectedly at a fairly young age, there's, there's always pretty much that same reaction whether it's Elvis or, or JFK or Marilyn Monroe or Paul Walker or any number of names that are well-known people that we could add to that list. And they all remind us of the intrusion and the interruption and the impartiality of death. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how good-looking you are. Doesn't matter how powerful you are. There's going to come a time when you're going to be swept out of this life into eternity to meet your maker and what will you do then? That's the question on the floor. I preached the funeral for people over 100 years old. My maternal grandmother was one of those. And I preached the funerals of tiny babies. I'm not sure why dying catches us so much by surprise. You'd think that we would be used to it. Even this morning, we made an announcement about a brother in Christ 
who died this week. And I don't think one of us here expected that, that we would be announcing our brother Raymond's passing. The fact is, and the truth of the matter is, every town has a cemetery, at least one of them. And every newspaper carries the obituaries. The fact is the funeral home never closes. The funeral business never knows a recession. Here's what James said about that in James 4.13 beginning. Listen closely. And now I have a word for you, James Wright. This is the message, by the way. I, I kind of like this translation, so I'm going to share this with you. And now I have a word for you who brashly announce, Today or at the least tomorrow, we're off to such and such a city for the year. And we're going to start a business and we're going to make a lot of money. You don't know the first thing about tomorrow, James says. You're nothing but a wisp of fog, catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. Instead, make it a habit to say, if the master wills and we're still alive, we will do this or that. I submit that that is a reasonable approach to life. Not to say, here's what we're going to do next year. Or even to say with absolute 100% certainty, here's what we're going to do tomorrow morning. But to always say, or at least implied, that I know that all of this is contingent upon what the Lord's will might be. Because there is the distinct possibility that I or you or any one of us in an audience of this size will not be here tomorrow. I saw a YouTube clip just the other day, caught my attention because it was about a preacher. And it was a man who was standing in the pulpit one particular Sunday morning, lamenting the loss of his sweet wife. They'd been married for 52 years. And he was talking about the emotional adjustments that he was having to make to wake up each morning and to look over on her side of the bed and to find it empty and the sheets undisturbed. What it was like to ride down the road and to go kicking around on his off day, maybe go to the mall or some other place uh, they like to go antiquing, and to look over at her side of the car and she is no longer there. Or to prepare a meal for just one. And he said, I don't know when my time will come, but I tell you what, I am looking forward to seeing Margaret again. That was on a Sunday morning. On Wednesday morning, a preacher friend preached his funeral. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm not even saying that to be overly dramatic. I'm saying that because that is a fact of life. There's a one-to-one -one ratio Every person that's born will someday die if the Lord delays his return. So James is giving us a marvelous and balanced perspective on life. When you make your plans, always do that with the will of God, whatever God wills in mind. And if we understand that, I think it's going to make a difference in how we live our lives and the choices that we make and certainly how we respond to the gospel message. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that God speaks to us through his inspired word. Let me make that clear. God speaks to us through his inspired word. There are no latter-day revelations. If someone on television, the radio, or in person 
tells you that God spoke to me last night, here's the message that he wants you to have, you can know that he's a charlatan. There are no latter-day revelations. Do I need to say it again? That means if you want to hear God speak to you, then you need to read the Bible. And if you want to hear God's audible voice, then you need to read the Bible out loud. You see where I'm going with that. But I'm equally convinced that God can work in our lives in, in, in other ways than just the written word. To say that that's the only way he communicates, that's one thing. But to say that that's the only way that God can work in our lives is a different matter. For example, to the Ephesians, Paul says, the spirit strengthens us in the inner man. How he does that, I don't know, but I do know that he does because the Bible tells me so. But I'm equally convinced that God can work in our lives, again, in, in other ways. He can, he can work through us and in us through the voice of other people who have our best spiritual interest in mind. Proverbs talks a lot about receiving the advice of a friend and a people of wise counsel, and that's always a good thing. Galatians 6.1, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual go and restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. There's God speaking through the instrumentality of man, someone who's coming and pleading for your soul and asking you to be restored to favor and fellowship with God. The Bible itself says that God's power and creative might can be seen in his universe. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 19 verse 1. Can we look at the stars and know what to do to be saved? Absolutely not. That's a matter of biblical record. Can we look at the stars and know there's a God? Absolutely so. God speaks to us even through nature. We understand that. He's also placed a conscience within us to remind us of our responsibilities toward him. And uh, at least C.S. Lewis called this a sense of oughtness. Others have called it moral law. And, and I believe there's an innate awareness of, of moral law in our, in our consciousness. And, and the blessings that he showers upon us should make us aware of his goodness and his constant, persistent providence in our lives. You know, even the, and I don't like to talk much about this and you probably don't like to hear about it, but the Bible teaches that even the trials and the troubles of life have a refining effect on us and they are intended to bring us to our spiritual senses. There is no senseless suffering, you see. God even allows us to suffer in order for that to be oftentimes a wake-up call that tells me, hey, I, I need to recognize that there is a God to whom I'm ultimately and morally accountable. I, I believe any or all of those things can be used by a sovereign God to speak to us, to communicate a message of, of sorts to us. Isaiah said in the long ago, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. His ear is not heavy or dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. If you want to know the real problem, it's the sin problem. If you want to know where, why sin is a problem in the lives of every one of us, it's not because of God's fault. It's not because God hasn't done enough to make possible our salvation. And it sure isn't because God doesn't love us enough. It's because I'm still persistently and consistently allowing sin to hinder my relationship with that loving and grace-filled, wonderful God. 
So the question has never been, can and has God communicated his message of hope and salvation to lost humanity? The question has always been, will we listen? And that's my message to you today. Little wonder that that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. The sobering reality is we're not given life in years, months, or even days. Life comes in momentary, fleeting increments of right now, in this present moment, and we have no guarantee of any other. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hens will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. The present only is our own, so live and love and toil with the will. Place no faith in tomorrow, for the hands may then be still. Before I end this lesson, very quickly, I want us to think for just a moment about a couple of verses in Acts 24. Here's where Paul was in prison. I might say parenthetically again, and he's being visited by a man by the name of Felix, who was the Roman governor of Judea at the time. Well, Felix was married to a Jewish woman, and so unlike Pilate, his predecessor, Felix had some acquaintance with religion, particularly Judaism. And so verses 24 and 25 of Acts 24 reads like this. The Bible says several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, And he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Some versions say he trembled. Other versions say he was terrified. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave, and when I find it convenient, I will send for you, Did you notice how we have gone full circle right back to the opening illustration of preaching Joe's funeral? When it is convenient, I will send for you. When I have a better time and when all of the circumstances of my life line up, then I intend to walk down the aisle, give the preacher my hand and God my heart, but not until then. This is not convenient for me. This is not a good time. I'm just telling us, I'm just reminding us with all the love in my heart that I can muster that on the day of judgment, as we all stand, and I mean all of us before that almighty God, would we want to tell the Lord, listen, I I heard the gospel. I knew all about your great love. I knew of all of the provisions that you've made for my salvation and allowing your son to be sacrificed and to shed his blood on that old rugged cross, and I almost did something about it. Or would you rather be able to say when you're called into judgment, yes, Lord, I can circle on the calendar the very day when I obeyed the gospel and had my sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful If that day that you circled on the calendar was February the 6th, 2022, I want to ask, could this be the day for you?
And since I know that this could be the day, I will ask this question. Will this be the day that you obey the Lord and become a Christian while we stand and while we sing? I have decided.